0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation 20. We've been looking at eternity. We've been following what happens to a believer from the very moment of death into heaven. Awaiting resurrection, at the bodily resurrection, and now into the kingdom age, the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and that has brought us to Revelation chapter 20. And since you're going to experience this for a thousand years, we can at least do not just one week, but at least two weeks on it, and we will do it uh, today and next week as well. One of the big issues that people have with Christianity is the problem of evil. Indeed, it's a problem. It's everywhere. They say, when will evil finally end? When will all the bad guys get put away? Why does it all have to continue so long? Moreover, as our culture moves on, it seems that we'll take values of what is good and evil and turn them around. Consider a modern-day telling of Little Red Riding Hood. It would go something like this. Once upon a time in a faraway country lived a little girl called Red Riding Hood. One day her mother asked her to take a basket of fruit to her grandmother, who had been ill and lived alone in a cottage in the forest. It happened that a wolf was lurking in the bushes and overheard the conversation. Well, he decided to take a shortcut to grandmother's house and get the goodies for himself. The wolf killed the grandmother, then dressed in her nightgown and jumped into bed to await the little girl. When she arrived, he made several nasty suggestions and then tried to grab her. But by this time, the child was very frightened and ran screaming from the cottage. A woodcutter, working nearby, heard her cries and rushed to the rescue. He killed the wolf with his axe, thereby saving Red Riding Hood's life. All the townspeople hurried to the scene and proclaimed the woodcutter a hero. But at the inquest, several facts emerged. The wolf had never been advised of his rights. The woodcutter had made no warning swings before striking the fatal blow. The Civil Liberties Union stressed the point that although the act of eating grandma may have been in bad taste, the wolf was only doing his thing and thus did not deserve the death penalty. The SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, contended that the killing of grandmother should be considered self-defense since she was over 30 (laughs) and therefore couldn't be taken seriously because the wolf was trying to make love and not war. On the basis of these considerations, it was decided there was no valid basis for the charges against the wolf. Moreover, the woodcutter was indicted for unaggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Several nights later, the woodcutter's cottage was burned to the ground. And one year from the date of the incident at Grandma's, the cottage was made a shrine for the wolf who had bled and died there. All the village officials spoke at the dedication, but it was Red Riding Hood who gave the most touching tribute. She said that while she had been selfishly grateful for the woodcutter's intervention, she realized in retrospect that he had overreacted. As she knelt and placed a wreath in honor of the brave wolf, there wasn't a dry eye in the whole forest. Isaiah the prophet said, woe to those who call evil good and who call good evil. To take the very principles of what is valued and completely turn them around. Woe to them. And so we wonder, when's that going to end? Well, the same Isaiah who wrote what I just quoted to you also predicted a time of righteousness. He said... These words, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. There is coming a time, there is coming a time of peace, of justice, of divine retribution, followed by an age, an era of utopia. It won't be a dream. I've worked with law enforcement officers long enough to know that their code word for Uh, criminals and perpetrators is simply the bad guy. And they feel really good when they can follow the lead and apprehend and incarcerate the bad guy in a crime scene. The ultimate bad guy is Satan himself. And chapter 20 shows that before the millennial kingdom on earth can begin, this guy has to be caught and apprehended and incarcerated. There can be no thousand years A peace on earth until that happens. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished but after these things he must be released for a little while satan is at large he is on the move his head was bruised genesis 3:15 predicted and his head was bruised at the cross but here he is put away put in jail incarcerated for a thousand years before he's finally and eternally consigned to what's called the lake of fire which shows up later on in this chapter But this morning because this is such a vital component of your eternity in mind let's just look at these three verses again and let's consider it let's unpack it in four movements let's look at the pursuer the angel who's doing the job Let's consider the prisoner himself, that is Satan. The place where he's going to be incarcerated. And finally, the whole purpose for it. So verse 1 tells us the pursuer. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now we don't know who this angel is. Could be just any one of the angels. My view is is that it's probably, and again, it's just my opinion, it's probably Michael. Jude calls him the archangel. He's like the big bouncer angel. He'd be the perfect guy for this job. And he's introduced in the book of Revelation in chapter 12. In verse 7 it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Now, it's the end of the tribulation. And the tribulation ends with Jesus Christ coming back, and he puts an end to a battle of nations that have gathered against him and against his people at Jerusalem, the Jewish people, the covenant people. And he puts an end to that battle, and Michael will be a part of that. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And i got to think that Michael would love the job. He's been the arch enemy of Satan from the beginning. They're both high-ranking angels. They both fought each other. In Jude, verse 9, it says, Michael, the archangel, disputing or contending or fighting with the devil about the body of Moses. So it would just make sense that the angel, the pursuer, the police officer arresting the bad guy, would be... Michael. I want to throw this in because it's important at this point. One of the biggest lies Satan has is that he's somehow the comparable opposite of God. And this idea has even gotten into the minds of some Christians that you have this big cosmic battle and in this corner is God and in this corner is the devil. As if they're somehow cosmic comparable opposites. Nothing could be further from the truth. The devil is not the opposite of God. He doesn't, on his best day, come close to any of the power, any of the strength, any of the might of the one who created him. Satan is not omnipresent, not omniscient, not omnipotent. He would be more closely matched to Michael, both high-ranking angels. One fell, Satan, and one did not. Now, when Satan fell, how many angels went with him? What's the proportion? A third of the angelic hosts. And I just got to frame this for your perspective once again, that rather than getting all weirded out because there's demons out there, and there are, I'm not minimizing that. If one third fell, how many stayed? Yeah, two thirds. So for every demon, there's two good angels. And that's good news to you and I, because the Bible says they help us. And frankly, I need all the help I can get. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, they are ministering spirits spirits sent to minister to those who inherit salvation. And so, in verse 1, this angel comes down from heaven with a very specific agenda to pursue, to apprehend, to incarcerate. To lock up for a thousand years Satan. Notice he has the key to the bottomless pit. The key designates authority. You don't get in the door without the key. Here at Calvary we have lots of different rooms with lots of different locks. And they take lots of different keys. But there are some keys that are given out. We call it the A key. In fact right on the key it says A. Now, the A key will let you in any door. This angel has the A key. He can even unlock the bottomless pit and incarcerate those that God sends him to do. And it's got to be a great moment for this angel. It's like whoever it is is like, all right, the day has come. Here goes. Because this is the day of Satan's humbling. This is the one who wanted to be lifted up above all the other beings. He was top of the heap. In Isaiah chapter 14, we read that Satan said... I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. That's what he said. Now listen to what God said to him. Same chapter. Yet you shall be brought down to hell to the lowest sides of the pit. And now we read the fulfillment of that prediction in Isaiah 14. Years ago in London, there was a, a bar, a tavern, and it went by the name of The Devil and St. Dustin, The Devil and St. Dunstan. You know, the British can have the weirdest names for things. Well, after court, a lot of lawyers in the area would go to the bar. They'd talk about the court cases. And so they would hang signs on their office doors, gone to the devil because it was the abbreviated name for the tavern, the devil and St. Dunstan. Well, so many of these signs appeared that after a period of time, the very idea was changed and the meaning was changed. Gone to the devil meant gone to ruin. And that's where the term comes from. That bar in England, that tavern. Gone to the devil. When Satan caused our first parents in the garden to buy into his lies, and there was that great fall... And the curse placed upon humanity. It was as if a sign were hung over the earth. Gone to the devil. But now, it's as if a new sign gets posted. Over the inhabitation of Satan himself. Gone to the pit. Where he will be there for a thousand years. You know what comes to my mind? Remember in the Wizard of Oz? Ding dong, the witch is dead. Which old witch? The wicked witch. Well, ding-dong, the witch, in this case the devil, is incarcerated for a thousand years. Let's let's look at this prisoner. Notice that in verse 2 he goes by not one, but four different titles. John writes, He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now most people today don't believe in a literal devil. I do, you and I do. Christians who believe the Bible do, but people for the most part don't buy into the literalness of the devil. He's a hes a figure of speech. He's the embodiment of evil. He's the stuff that uh, movies are made out of or songs are made out of. I did a little search. Here's a sampling of songs that use the devil in it. The devil in the deep blue sea. The devil with the red dress on. The devil went down to Georgia. I won't dispute that. (laughs) The devil in her heart. Sympathy for the devil. Run, devil, run. The devil inside. The devil's train. Gallup organization did a poll. They said 70% of Americans believe in the devil, but half say, half of the 70% say that he's a personal being. The other half say that He's the embodiment of evil, the impersonal force of evil. It's just a name for evil. Moreover, let me break it down for you because the Barna Research Group asked people to respond to this statement. Here's the statement. The devil, Satan, is not a living being. He's just the symbol of evil. Now listen to this. Of those who said they're born-again Christians, 32% strongly agreed with that statement. 11% somewhat agreed with that statement. 5% said they don't know. That means 48% of those who claim to be born-again Christians either say the devil is just a symbol of evil, not a real being, or they don't know. That's staggering. You know, it's like the two little six-year-old boys, they were discussing the devil and the theology of the devil and... It'll give you insight into the theology of a six-year-old. One little boy said, well, I don't believe in the devil. The other boy said, well, I believe in the devil. You should too, because he's written all the way through the Bible. It's written about him. The first boy said, yeah, but it's not like really actually true. The devil's like Santa Claus. He turns out to be your dad. I'd never share that on Father's Day. Now, notice that in verse 2, he's called the dragon. Now, that term for the devil, the dragon, is a book of Revelation term. You find it 13 times in the Scripture, all in the book of Revelation. Here's why. That will be his character and nature in the end times. Vicious, cruel, devouring, like a dragon. Also, he's called the serpent of old. Now, that takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. When that beautiful creature appeared to Eve and deceived her. And then just so you don't mistake who it is, two other titles are given him. The devil, Diabolos, means slanderer or one who defames. And you know why he's called that, don't you? Because the scripture says he is before the throne of God, accusing us before God night and day. Now, he's got to have a lot on us if he can every night, every day, talk about God's children and slander us and defame us before his throne. And then he's called Satan. That's his most common name in the Bible. That appears 54 times. And Satan simply means enemy. He's your enemy, he's your adversary. That's what Satan means. Now, that is good news. Because if you want to have any relationship at all with the devil, it ought to be that he's your enemy. You don't want him as a friend. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, There's something very comforting in the thought that the devil is an adversary. I would sooner have him for an adversary than for a friend. Oh, my soul, it were dread work with you if Satan were a friend of yours. For then with him you must forever dwell in darkness. Shut out from the friendship of God. So, right here is a climactic moment in redemptive history. The enemy of our souls is grabbed, apprehended, and placed in the bottomless pit. This is the time when the roaring lion, that's what Peter calls him, right? Roaring lion is finally overcome by the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now... With the devil gone, with the devil out of the picture, what a world this is going to be. Just that fact alone, no devil. The world is going to be dramatically different in a number of ways. And again, I'll just give you a snapshot of what it's going to be like during the kingdom age. Months it would take to uncover all of the texts, but I'll give you just a snapshot. Number one, there's going to be changes in Jerusalem. Now, this is one of the reasons I love to take people on tours to Israel. And I've done it 31 times. Because it's great for people to see what it looks like now. So that when they see it in the future, they go, oh, I remember what it used to look like. In fact, that used to be over there. This place has changed. It's going to get a makeover. First of all, when Jesus returns, his foot is going to touch what mountain? Mount of Olives. Same mountain he left on. And Zechariah 14 says his foot is going to hit the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two. From east to west. Half the mountain will be removed to the north. Half the mountain to the south. And a huge valley will be made in between. Presumably where the nations will be judged at the end of the tribulation period. It's also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And a huge valley will be formed. Mount of Olives won't look the same. Also... A stream of water will gush from the ground from Jerusalem and flow half down toward the Mediterranean Sea and half down toward the Dead Sea. This is Ezekiel chapter 47 and 48. The waters of the Dead Sea are going to be healed. Now, you know the Dead Sea is called dead because it's dead. It's not mostly dead. It's all dead. Nothing lives in it. The salt solution is so high, only a few microbacterial creatures, but it's dead. The Bible says the waters will be healed and fishermen will spread their nets down at En Gedi, which is on the shores of the Dead Sea, and abundance of fish will be caught. Life-giving. Israel will occupy the borders God promised originally in Genesis chapter 15. That means the land of Israel will then include Lebanon, Syria, Syria, Parts of Jordan, Sinai, and Iraq. Now, the leaders of these countries would not be too psyched about that. But that's, that's the borders God promised it. That's the borders they're going to take. Moreover, the land will be divided, the land of Israel, into three sections. North, south, and in the middle. In the north, seven tribes will occupy. In the south, the other five. And in the middle, that's where the priests will live. Who will officiate at the millennial temple. Now, that's just Jerusalem. The second thing in the millennial kingdom is that the animal kingdom will be tamed. You won't need zoos. You won't need wild animal parks or cages. The creation will be freed from its bondage. Listen to what Isaiah writes in chapter 11, verses 6 through 8. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard and the goat will be at peace. Calves and yearlings will be safe among lions. And a little child will lead them. The cattle will graze among the bears, cubs and calves will lie down together, and lions will eat grass as the livestock do. Babies will crawl safely among the poisonous snakes, and yes, a little child will put its hand into a nest of deadly snakes and pull it out unharmed. You get the picture. The curse will be removed. Animals will be docile and tame. You remember that incident last year at the zoo in China when that young teenager got up against a panda bear cage? You might have seen it on television. And He just wanted a picture with a panda bear as the background. But he got close enough that that cuddly, sweet little panda bear that wouldn't hurt anybody, right, reached its claws through the cage and grabbed that young man. And were it not for a few quick-thinking people, he'd have been killed. The bear simply got his jacket and mangled it. I remember one time I was in Kenya, and I was in the back of a truck. It was an old Land Rover, and we were driving through the bush, and I saw a lioness and her cubs. And so the driver pulled like five, seven feet away from this family. And here's me, dumb skip from America, rolling the window down, sticking my camera out to take pictures of it. And the driver just said very firmly but gently, Close the window. He says, that animal looks really nice, but you're in her living room right now. If you, you get too close, that thing's going to jump at you and tear your head off. So I quickly rolled the window up. I realized I'm not in the millennium yet. Got to wait for that. The third thing that you can expect during that kingdom age is this earth is going to look lush and beautiful. The biosphere will be lush, like a flowering garden. Now, just imagine looking out toward the west side of Albuquerque. And it looks like the forest, rainforest of Oregon. Isaiah 35 Even the wilderness will rejoice in those days. The desert will blossom with flowers. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon and as lovely as Mount Carmel's pastures and the plain of Sharon. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness. Streams will water the desert. The parched ground will become a pool, and springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh, grass, and reeds and rushes will flourish where desert jackals once lived. Can't wait to mountain bike through that. Fourth thing is there will be a healing of disabilities. Isaiah 35 continues, He will open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will shout and sing. There's going to be longevity as well during this time. That's the fifth thing you can expect. Health and longevity. Isaiah 65. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. Boy, isn't that great news? You don't have to buy all those fancy expensive face creams or get a... You know, stretch job on the... And it's just longevity. Of course, for those of us who are believers, you're going to be in glorified bodies anyway, so this isn't going to even affect your constitution, but it will for those who are still in their mortal bodies who have made it through the tribulation and have children for those thousand years. Sixth and finally, and again, I'm just giving you a snapshot here. Finally... There's going to be world peace. Now let those words settle upon you. Because remember last week, Will Durant, we noted, said, There's only been 8% of history that has seen world peace. Out of 3,124 years of recorded history, 268 have seen no war. The millennial kingdom of Christ will be a time where there will be world peace. Gallup organization says one of the most frequently asked questions generation after generation is when will there ever be world peace? I can answer that. And you can answer that. Only in the millennial reign of Christ and not before. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 says the Lord will at that time settle international disputes. All the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. All wars will stop and military training will come to an end. Now next week we're going to consider more of the governmental structure of the kingdom age because you're going to be a part of it. But here it is in some summary form. It's going to be a government by the Lord... Of the Lord and for the Lord. A total theocracy. He will rule and reign with a rod of iron. Now, a question comes up, and it's an important one. If Satan is bound for a thousand years, does that mean there'll be no sin at all during the millennium? No, there'll be sin. It'll just be quickly challenged and quickly kept in check, hence, The term, rule with the rod of iron. You see, you don't need the devil to sin. It comes from your flesh. Satan simply provides the stimulating environment. And he'll be out of the way, but people in their mortal bodies will be born with a sin nature. And thus the propensity towards sin, though kept in check, until finally Satan is released at the end of the tribulation, or end of the millennium. Now go back to verse 1 and verse 3. For a moment, just consider the place where Satan will be incarcerated. It's called the bottomless pit. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Verse three, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him. Now, what is that? Well, it's the Greek word abousas, some translation, the abyss, our translation, the bottomless pit. You know that that was one of my names my friends used to give me back in the early days when I was uh, uh, early 20s. I ate so much and I ate quickly. They just said, you are, that was my nickname, the abyss, the bottomless pit. So I probably shouldn't have let that out, should I have? Because I think uh, I'll never live that one down. But uh, the bottomless pit or the abyssos is a place of temporary Incarceration. think of it as a holding tank it's where demons are kept and Satan will be bound temporarily awaiting his final judgment his final sentence which will be in the lake of fire verse 10 look at that and the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever So this is like the intermediate hell before the final hell. It's the same place Peter wrote about in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. He spoke about demons who are in chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. You remember in the gospel stories where Jesus goes from one side of the lake of Galilee to the other side and the side he goes to is the eastern side called the Gadarenes or the, the area of Gadara. And there was a demon-possessed man who lived in the tombs. And uh, when Jesus saw this man who was inhabited by a legion of demons, they spoke through that man and it says, They begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. They, were, they wanted to be free. They wanted to torment people. And their big fear is that Jesus would consign them to this pit awaiting final execution. Well, notice it says in our text there was a great chain in this angel's hand. You see, Satan is such a great foe and has wreaked such great havoc on the earth, you need a great chain to bind him. And I can't resist this. That story that I just mentioned about the demon-possessed man, the Gadarenes, Listen to what Mark writes in Mark chapter 5. No one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. Here's the point. Satan's demons can break the chains of man, but even Satan himself will not be able to undo or break this great chain for a thousand years no weaseling out of this one no Houdini out of this one he's bound he's incarcerated and why what is the purpose the purpose is found in verse 3 so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished but after these things he must be released for a little while Why why is it that Satan has to be bound before the millennium can even be inaugurated? Because of his deception. Now, what is Satan's primary activity on the earth right now? Given this verse that we just read. It is deception. The, The devil's main activity isn't to scare little children or to murder people. His main activity is to deceive people. Jesus called the devil... A liar and the father of lies. In Revelation chapter 12, we read the devil, the dragon, who deceives the whole world. Now, how does he do that? False doctrine, false religious systems, false hope for unbelievers who think they're going to go to heaven, but they're not because they've never received Christ as their Savior. They go, Well, oh, I'm good enough. And only good people go to heaven. No, only saved people go to heaven. And he deceives the world. First John chapter 5, verse 19. John says, same guy who wrote this book. We know we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, that's quite a statement. To say, well, we know we're of God, but everyone in the world is lying under the sway of the wicked one. He's a deceiver. He's deceived a lot of people. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four. The God of this age, who's that? Satan. Satan, the God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. So here's my point: For a thousand years, no deceptions. The deceptions are over. That means there's not going to be any satanic ideologies, no satanic philosophies, no cults, no astrological forecasts, no heresies, no false theories of morality. That's all gone. He's out of the picture. It'll be understood what is right and what is wrong. Now, in closing, remember last week we talked about the three different viewpoints of the millennium? And I mentioned that all millennialism teaches. That we're in the kingdom right now. This is the millennium. I'm disappointed if that's true. This is the kingdom age. Christ is reigning over his church right now. Well, if this is the kingdom age, then Satan is what? He's got to be bound. If this is the kingdom, Satan is bound. I don't think so. If this is Satan being bound, he's got an awfully long chain. And here's why. He's not bound The Bible says exactly the opposite. Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 5, Your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's not bound. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 about the devil. He calls him the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. There are many texts like that. Satan is not bound. This is not the kingdom. This is not the kingdom. We're waiting for the kingdom. Listen, when the kingdom comes, you'll know it. You'll know it. Everybody will know it. The knowledge of God will cover the earth, fill the earth as waters cover the sea. It will be a very, very different scene than it is today. The bad guy will be put away for a thousand years. Every now and then I'll encounter some spiritual group, some religious group, some well-meaning Christian who will try to take authority in and of himself and say, I'll bind you, Satan. They'll even talk to Satan. I, I Don't even talk to him. Talk to God. But I'll bind you, Satan. Do me a favor. If you're going to bind Satan, bind him for good, would you? Because whatever you're doing, it's not working. He keeps getting out. <laughs> he keeps getting out. And I know Jesus said what is bound on earth is bound in heaven. That's in the context of church leadership and making binding decisions that are bound also in heaven. Here's the truth. You can't bind him. Only Christ can and will bind him through this strong angel. And it will happen then. And so here's what we have to face. Satan is very... Active and he's very out in the open and he is not bound and he is loose. And because he is loose, he is deceiving. And could it be that some here have been deceived about the most important thing in the world, the most important thing ever, and that is eternity? Could it be that some are deceived still here thinking, well, I go to church every week well, I'm a good person. I'm a nice guy. I'm not really opposed to God. I said some prayer sometime, somewhere, I think. That could be a a form of great deception. You know, Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he can never see the kingdom of God. Born again Christianity is not a subculture. It's not like you got Presbyterians and Catholics and Methodists and then that born again group. That's that flavor of Christianity, that new thing. There's only one type of person in heaven, and that's the born again type. Unless a man is born again, he will never see the kingdom of God. Doesn't matter what flavor you are, you can be a born again. Presbyterian, born-again Baptist, born-again non-denominationalist, but you have to be born again. And that is where you come to an end of yourself and receive Christ's solution for your sin and mine and be saved. Don't be deceived. The deceiver walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. My, My strong urge is that you let Christ come into your life. Because when Christ comes into your life, He's not going to share that house with the devil. That's where the enlightenment comes. That's where the freedom comes. That's where the perspective comes. Heavenly Father, we think back to the very words of Paul the Apostle who said, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And we pray, Father, that that men and women here today would be right with you. Right for eternity. And have made the decision to follow Christ as Savior and as Lord. Thank you for the truth that sets us free. And thank you for that glorious promise that there's coming a day when Satan, our arch enemy, the slanderer, the defamer, the one who hates our souls and has worked hard to lie to us, will be bound, incarcerated for a thousand years.